Ching, boy, it's good stuff. So let's just start with a word of prayer. Father, we just want to commend our time to you, pray your blessing upon it, and these wonderful words that our Lord Jesus spoke, that they would have meaning to us today, and that they would go with us the rest of our lives. In his name we pray, amen. So uh, thank you, Jim, for introducing uh, this series that we're beginning for the next month and a half or so on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Most of you probably heard about that. It's probably one of the most famous messages ever given and heard in all of history. And uh, I feel very uh, incompetent to begin it, but Mark has asked me to do that and uh, to start with the Beatitudes, which is uh, perhaps one of the most difficult sections or one of the harder sections in Scripture to deal with. You might say, why is that? Because... um, how do we take it? Is it something that, that we should be ourselves every day? Or was this meant for some future kingdom time? There's a lot of questions about all this. It's not as straightforward as many think. And I'm not going to try to answer the questions for you today. You can do your own research. Uh, but there's definitely uh, applications that we can take from it, whether they're direct or indirect. And that's all I'm going to say by way of uh, my introduction to it. But what I believe we're going to see as we go through, especially these Beatitudes, and some of them say these are the, the be attitudes, how to be, or the blessed attitudes, because it's talking about being blessed. But the main thing I see overriding is how to live a blessed life in a cursed world. And that's what I see is really behind all of these uh, thoughts that the Lord himself shared. So let's look for a minute at a little bit of the background. We have some of the passages here in Matthew and Luke And I also put a Psalm 37 down, which you may be scratching your head going, why did you put Psalm 37? I've never seen anybody refer to Psalm 37 when they talked about the Beatitudes. All coming. All right. So first thing, what are some of the things that led up to this important event in the life of Jesus Christ? And I'm going to just mention here to begin with that probably there were about seven months to a year. This is not anything in concrete, but probably if you look at the Gospels and you harmonize them as best as we're able to, from the time that Jesus was baptized by John and began the public ministry until the time he spoke these famous words, approximately seven months to a year of time went on. Well, what happened during that time? Well, at about 30 was the baptism. I'm going to turn this light out so you can maybe see a little better. And then Jesus came back to Galilee for a wedding. You probably all know about that in John 2. And to visit Capernaum. He went back to Jerusalem for the Passover and he cleansed the temple in John. You see that in John 2. Then returned to the Jordan with his followers to baptize others. His his disciples did a lot of the baptizing. Then he went back through Samaria. You know the story of the woman at the well, most of you. And he went back up into Galilee to where his hometown had been. And then... Uh, he began what is called sometimes the Galilean circuit, and he began to preach what is what's called uh, the, 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 gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, where he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, which is the same thing John had been preaching, John the Baptist. Then he went to, back to Nazareth, his hometown. He experienced rejection uh, as the Messiah. They said, who are you? You're you're, you're Mary's son. You're Joseph's son. We know who you are. Who do you think you are? You know, what's the matter with you, buddy? And uh, they rejected him. So he went and he moved to Capernaum. And then he did many great miracles. And he'd already done some before, obviously, the, the wedding at Cana and when he was in Jerusalem. 
But then he started doing it in Galilee, in the northern area up by the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the result was there was a massive, massive following. There were people coming from all the surrounding areas, even down south by Jerusalem in Judea. They had heard about this person doing these amazing things that no one could, could do, no one else could do. And so they wanted to see about it, and many of them wanted to be healed or to hear more about who Jesus was. Well, here's just a real quick um, kind of, let me put this in a different mode for you. Might be able to see it better. Sort of a, a quick map where you can trace his, his journeys as he went down, was baptized over here somewhere, and then he went to, um, to the temptation down here somewhere. It could have been over here. We don't know exactly. And then he came back up to Jerusalem. He went back. He did some baptizing of his own, went up here. He, did, uh, he came back to Jerusalem another time. Then he, he did some circuit up here. Then he went up to Capernaum after Nazareth. And then he began his uh, message. So that's hopefully not confusing you too much. But that's basically what's going on. Now, where was this sermon that took place? This is possibly the very hill that it took place on. We don't know for sure. There is actually a little church here that's been, that's been uh, uh, built up there called the Mount of Beatitudes Church. And, uh, and, it, and it is a likely setting. It's near Capernaum. And it's a gradual slope. It goes up to several higher hills. And there's another picture from the side view just to get an idea off of Google Earth what that might have looked like. And here's an artist's rendering of what the scene may have appeared like, the Sea of Galilee down here and Jesus on the hill with those who are with him. So let's get uh, into the scripture and see a little bit of the background. We'll read first in Matthew 4, beginning with verse 23. So Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. Okay, so then we're going to get into the Beatitudes. Well, let's just read a little bit of Luke, the parallel gospel, the only one that mentions this incident of, of the uh, Beatitudes. If you turn to Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, we get a little more insight into the setting of this important uh, time. Luke 6, beginning with verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And he continued all night in prayer to God. And then it was day, when it was day, he called his disciples to him, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. And you can read all their names there. Verse 17, he came down with them, stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples 
and said. All right, so there's your setting for this great message, the greatest message many have said that has ever been spoken. So you get a little feel for what was going on. Well, all right, what about this uh, Psalm 37? Here's what my speculation is, and please take it as that, and do your own reading about this, but um, that Psalm 37 may have been what Jesus, while he was praying all night on the mountain, when he went up higher up, uh, perhaps was meditating on this. Now, keep in mind, Psalm 37 was a psalm that David wrote down under inspiration. So Jesus, being God, actually inspired this psalm himself. So this wasn't anything new to him, but the thoughts of that psalm were probably weighing heavily on his heart. And it's likely because, and we didn't read this further back background, but that he was already experiencing tremendous opposition. There were already people who were questioning him. Many were jealous, perhaps. They felt that he wasn't being religious the way they wanted him to be. Or for other reasons, they were angry, they were not happy. And you'd say, why? You know, well, what could he was doing? He was going around healing. It'd be like if he was here today, he'd be going out to Strong. He'd be going to Rochester General. He'd be going to Unity. And he'd clear the place out. <laughs> I mean, why would anybody be upset about that, right? I mean, that's, that's crazy. Not only that, but he's speaking words of truth that hadn't been heard before. I mean, they had the law, and they had the prophets, and they had the writings of the Old Testament. They had a lot of truth. But Jesus spoke to their hearts about the way God thinks and the way we are and the needs we have. You'd think they would have listened, but there were many who were against him. And not only that, but I believe Jesus, because he was God, is God, was thinking down the road with these disciples that he was about to begin this journey with for the next couple years possibly on earth. And he was preparing them Remember, he's addressing them in this address, and he's saying, guys, this isn't going to be a happy environment for you. You're not going to be applauded. Not, people aren't going to be, oh, yeah, great, come on, Peter, let's go. No, you're going to have a lot of oppositions just like I am going to have that's going to ultimately lead to my rejection, crucifixion. So he was there, I believe, to prepare them largely for what they're about to about to face. So why Psalm 37? I hope by now you've turned there. Because a lot of reasons. The obvious one that, that hits you in the face is when we get to verses uh, verse 10 and 11 in there, you'll see an almost identical quote to the Beatitudes about blessed are the meek. You've all heard that one? For they shall inherit the earth, right? So if you're there at Psalm 37, just take a quick peek down to verse 11. The meek shall inherit the earth. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's like a verbatim quote. Well, there's also David was speaking the theme of his psalm was how the righteous will suffer at the hands of the wicked or the ungodly and how they can do that in a way that's pleasing to God. Now, you may not have looked at the Beatitudes this way before. You may have thought, hey, Jesus just wants us all to be happy. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, but there's a, a joy and there's a, there's a contentment that we can have even when we're the object of reproach and anger and angst. And that's what I think is going on here. So 
I'm going to try to look at these Beatitudes. We'll read them first in Matthew 5, and then we're going to look at them through the lens of Psalm 37. And I trust that uh, this will be of benefit to you today. So Matthew 5, and probably you could quote these with me, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are what? The poor in spirit, for they shall, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you, all right, when they Uh, revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, now let's just take a quick look at how does this work out with Psalm 37. There may be a hint here in the first eight verses of those who are the poor in spirit and in verses 9 to 11 of those who are meek. Of 12 to 15, those who mourn. 16 to 20, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. 21 to 26, the merciful. 27 to 31, the peacemakers. 32 to 36, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And 37 to 40, the pure in heart. Now, maybe you don't see that connection real clearly. And I'm not saying this is, you know, dogmatic truth. But uh, I think there is something going on here. So let's take a look at it. The first one. The Poor in Spirit. Billy Graham, back in 1955, wrote a little book that maybe some of you have heard of before. It's called The Secret of Happiness. You can tell by the cover. This is a 1955 book, and the pages are about to fall out of it. And in the first uh, few pages, I'm going to read a quote of uh, what he said here. It's still applicable today. I could give you a Billy Graham accent if you want. A French philosopher recently said, no, I won't won't go there. The whole world is on a mad quest for security and happiness. The president of Harvard University has said, the world is searching for a creed to believe and a song to sing. A Texas millionaire confided, I thought money could buy happiness. I have been miserably disillusioned. A famous film star broke down, I have money, beauty, glamour, and popularity. I should be the happiest woman in the world, but I am miserable. Why? One of Britain's top social leaders said, I have lost all desire to live, yet I have everything to live for. What's the matter? A man went to see a psychiatrist. He said, doctor, I am lonely, despondent, and miserable. Can you help me? The psychiatrist suggested that he go to the circus and see a famous clown who was a said to make even the most despondent laugh with merriment. His patient said, I am that clown. A college senior said, I'm 23. I've lived through enough experiences to be old and I'm already fed up with life. A famous Grecian dancer of yesteryear once said, I have never been alone, but what my hands trembled, my eyes filled with tears, and my heart ached for a peace and happiness I have never found. 
One of the world's great statesmen said to me, I am an old man. Life has lost all meaning. I am ready to take a fateful leap into the unknown. Young man, can you give me a ray of hope? There's a lot of sadness, isn't there, in our world. And even among those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, we experience a lot of sadness. We have a lot of hardships. We have a lot of difficulties, a lot of struggles. We're not always going around with a smile on our faces, are we? We're affected by the circumstances of our world. We're affected by the situations in our families, in our own lives, our work life. All of these things have some impact on us. These Beatitudes will help us to see how we can be contented with our lives and drawing strength from the Lord even when our situations are not particularly conducive to happiness. So just to quote Billy Graham one more time, um, when he was once asked, what did Jesus mean when he talked about the poor in spirit? This is what Billy Graham said. What did he mean? Simply this, we must be humble in our spirits. If you put the word humble in place of the word poor, you will understand what he meant. In other words, when we come to God, we must realize our own sin and our spiritual emptiness and poverty. We must not be self-satisfied or proud in our hearts, thinking we don't really need God. If we are, God cannot bless us. The Bible says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So who are these poor in spirit? And I'm going to draw here a little bit from Matthew and Luke and also from Psalm 37, what I think is applicable passages here. So the poor in spirit are those who are humble. They're spiritually in a state of knowing that they don't have it all figured out. They haven't got it all together. They're, there's issues and, and concerns in their lives. Psalm 37, the first eight verses, refers to a situation in which they're being oppressed by the wicked, as it's called. And the wicked uh, translation here in Psalm 37 in the Hebrew literally means those who are trying to do injurious harm to them. They're trying to hurt them, these people that are being so afflicted. So let's read those first eight verses. Do not fret or worry because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. And that word wait Patiently in the original has to do with a writhing uh, kind of motion, suffering, torture kind of thing. Wait patiently for him or suffer for him, you could translate that. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass, cease from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. You may have noticed there's three times that the righteous here are told, or the poor in spirit, as I think they may have been this group, don't worry. <laughs> Why? Because they're already probably disconsolate. They're probably already in need of comfort. When you read Luke's gospel, he at the end of his blessings, and we're going to get to this in a moment, he gives woes or curses. And that's the opposite, right? <laughs> and he addresses those who are rich, and we might add, is that in spirit and flesh, that I'll let you think about that a little bit. 
But one of the things about them is that you have already received your, in the Greek, consolation, paraklesis. You have gotten all that you're going to get. You've got all your comfort. The poor haven't. The poor in spirit, they haven't. They've had a lot of issues. There's probably been anxiety in their life because they're needy people spiritually. They have suffered for God, and you noticed in our text here, without becoming angry, even though that's a temptation. That's where it says in here, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Because it's easy to get angry at those who are hurting us and those who are opposed to us and those who think they're better than us and trying to make life miserable for us. I should just say in passing here, too, that underneath some of the blessings that God promises, he talks about theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Also in Psalm 37, it mentions the desires of their heart. God is going to give them those desires. So there's blessings not only in this life, but there's blessings in the life to come. And uh, yeah, so there's, there's a lot that we can see through here. So those who mourn are the next ones. Now, those who mourn, you may think, usually we relate it to loss of loved ones uh, or some horrible loss, personal loss in our life, and we, and we mourn that. Probably this context, and there's a number of reasons why I say this, has more to do with grieving over the evils in the world and the things that are affecting us because of the curse, that, that we see other people suffering and that we are suffering from. There is a a grief, there is a mourning that has to do with that. And in Psalm uh, 37, if you look at verses 12 to 15, I think this could relate to those people. It says, the wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. And that's the reason I think that it may have something to do about the mourning, because in, in Matthew and, and Luke especially, in the woes, he talks about, uh, you know, the laughter that, that will come uh, to those who are, are uh, 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 the, the mourning that will come to those who are laughing today. For he sees that his day is coming, the, the evil one's day. The wicked have drawn the sword. They've bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. So the needy, or the ones who mourn, they, they do weep in sorrow. They grieve due to unjust suffering. And what blessing is there is comfort, uh, both again in this life and the life to come. What about the meek? You know, we mentioned that uh, verse 11 has a direct quote of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here and his beatitude about the meek. In Psalm 37, 9 to 11, it says, For evildoers... And that's the same word that's used in verse 1. Um, again, those who are looking to injure and hurt shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord, and that's a different wait than the one that's up uh, that I mentioned earlier has to do with writhing and suffering. This is a different wait, and it has more to look for, to hope, to expect. Those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look diligently for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So what do the meek look like? They're gentle. They're afflicted. Think of Moses in Numbers 12.3. It says he was the meekest man on the earth at that time. 
And Moses had a lot of opposition. There were a lot of people among his own people besides the Egyptians that were wanting to hurt him and challenge him and put him down. But he was non-retaliatory, except the one time when he struck the rock. And he mostly waited on the Lord and hoped on the Lord. Well, what's promised to the meek? Inherit the earth? And here it talks about delighting in an abundance of peace. So those are good things that uh, those who are meek uh, can look forward to and enjoy. What about the next group? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, that's pretty self-explanatory. We don't need a whole lot to, to uh, guide us on that. There's not a lot of description about it, except, again, it's in the woes section, and it, and it talks about them being hungry, those who are filled now. But those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in Psalm 37 suggests that they're not ashamed, that their life, their little that they have is better than the riches of the many, and their future blessings, uh, they will be filled and have an excess and an eternal inheritance. So that we read in verses 16 to uh, 20 here in Psalm 37. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke they shall vanish away. What about the merciful? We all know what it means to be merciful. We all know people that are particularly have that, it's talked about as a spiritual gift in the New Testament, that have that gift of mercy, that are always seeming to be scanning for what are the needs, how can I reach out and help those people that are struggling with this or with that. Um, they want to go out and serve today when it's fellowship meal. Those are the merciful. Those are the people that that are always uh, looking out for others besides themselves. So verses 21 of Psalm 37, I think, has some relation to them through verse 26. It says, The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. Those who are blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those who are cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in the way Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. So, what about the merciful? They're kind. We learn from this passage, they give and lend. Uh, we're going to see how the others who are not that way don't do that. In fact, they, they just keep. The merciful, what are their blessings? They obtain mercy. It's a wonderful blessing. Uh, and, of course, we know spiritually speaking, when we speak of redemption or the Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy of Christ toward us, we spoke about in the first meeting, that he has provided for us, uh, that he gave us, as we emphasized in the first meeting. They're guided and provided for by God, and their descendants are blessed. So those are some wonderful things, the promises that, uh, that God gives to, to those who are among the merciful. Well, what about the pure in heart? I love that picture. Again, it doesn't need a lot of explanation as to what does that mean, to be pure in heart. It's more a matter of <laughs> seeing it in our lives and the lives of others, because it's one of those things since the curse, since the fall, has been... Uh, very deeply impacted and affected. 
The pure in heart trust in God. They experience God's strength in times of trouble. And we're told here in this passage in Matthew 5 that they're going to see God. And here in Psalm 37 that they're going to experience peace and salvation. I think the Psalm 37 passage relating to them probably is in verses 37 to 40 where it speaks about the blameless man. It says, mark the blameless man and observe the upright. In the LXX, the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, it has, it has a, uh, a sense of uh, beholding. I um, can't read my own writing here. Maintain innocence and behold. Uh, so there is, a, there is a sense in which it could be like beholding God. They're going to see God too here. Wouldn't, I wouldn't stake a doctrine on that. But anyway, yeah, there's that sense that uh, these pure in heart are blameless. And the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. All right, the peacemakers. This is a great one, isn't it? The peacemakers speak wisdom. They talk of justice. The law of God is in their heart. And they're called sons of God. In Psalm 37, they're called saints, and they inherit the land forever. So Psalm 37, I think the connection perhaps with this is in verses 27 to 31, where it says, Depart from evil and do good. Dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. Now, this is a real challenge uh, for us because we're not always uh, naturally peacemakers. <laughs> we tend our fallen nature is uh, the default is to be upset and angry when we're, we feel We've been hurt somehow by what someone said or did or didn't say or do, and, uh, and we hold it against them. And uh, this is pretty universal. I mean, I'm not just talking to us here in this building. This, you can go all over, and, um, and I, I've been, many of you know, been counseling with various people in many situations over the years, um, and I just find it all the time. I'm talking about Christians now largely, and obviously outside of Christendom it's even worse in most cases, but uh, it's certainly an issue that we have. It's hard for us to be peacemakers uh, in the sense of being forgiving and so forth and, and dealing with hurt in the proper way. So some of these things are very challenging. What about uh, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake? All right, they're ones whose God's law is in their heart, they keep his way and there's great reward in heaven, they're preserved forever and they're exalted to inherit the land. And here I see this as in, in verses um, uh, 22 to 25 in Psalm 37. So 22 says, The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Okay, enough of trying to see a connection in that. I don't know whether you've noticed it as well, but I think there's maybe something there. On this last one, we know that there's a rise in persecution of Christians in the United States. There's very little debate about that. Most uh, recognize it. This article back in 2016 in the Washington Times 
uh, did a poll that surfaced that the majority of people feel that there's a, an increase since 2013. Now that's over a three year period. We've had another three or so year period. It's been even more than that, I would say, and most would probably agree. Um, and they, in most, let's see what it says here. The bulk of that surge comes from respondents who said they strongly agree with the statement, a number that increased from 28% to 38. Similar numbers, 60% said religious leader, liberty is on the decline in America, up from 54% in 2013. All right, well, let's look at the Beatitudes from a little different perspective. Let's look at it from a New, New Testament perspective, what Paul wrote to the Galatians. And we all know probably this passage in Galatians 5 about the lusts of the flesh and the warfare with the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't need to preach about that. I'm sure you've all heard messages, but this is a very real thing. And anybody who's a truly a Christian that has the Spirit of God resident in them knows this struggle as that Spirit is wanting to have his way in our lives, and we're resisting from our sinful Adamic nature, and we're choosing to go the other way. And the Spirit of God is convicting and convincing us and trying to bring us back and restore us, and we know this fight. We know this struggle. This is an old battle. It goes back a long way to the Garden of Eden. But I've noticed what may be some connections here in terms of these attributes uh, that the Lord refers to, these inner qualities uh, of his disciples that he wants to see, and what we see from the work of the Spirit of God, which is to me an encouragement because it means it's not up to me to make all these things happen. I don't have to become, oh, I gotta become the purest in the world. I have to go climb up a pole 30 feet up for 20 years, so never talk to anybody, so I'm pure in heart. No, it doesn't say that. Uh, the Holy Spirit can work these things in our lives. The poor in spirit, I'm, I'm relating to faithfulness because I believe even in their, their own weakness, in their own need, their personal need. They learn to depend on the Lord. They learn to look to God. They learn to see that he is faithful and they in turn learn to be faithful. Those who mourn, mourning is connected very much with love if you think about it. Have you ever mourned somebody that you didn't know? I, I don't know of anybody that has. Generally speaking, that's not the case. It's, it's people that are close to us, people that we care about, that we know. This man who, who, who died down in York the other day, I don't know that man. I, I can't say I shed a tear over him. I feel sad for all the people in that community that have been affected by his death. But today, they're together crying. They're weeping together because he meant something to them, to their children. And we mourn for those that we love and for things that we love. And when we love God and we see his purposes being trampled on by others and even in our own lives, when we sin and we disobey God, we mourn, we feel a grief, we feel a sadness and a sorrow. The meek, well, the fruit of the spirit there is obviously gentleness. It's the same Greek word that uh, is in Matthew 5 and the same one that the Septuagint translates in Psalm 37, 11. Those who hunger and thirst, it's easy to make a connection with goodness. You know, they, they thirst after what? And hunger after what? Righteousness, right? The merciful, clearly kindness to me seems to be a good connection. The pure in heart, those who have self-control. They're not being led by the impure desires, by the lust of the flesh. They are allowing the spirit's control in their life to overcome those temptations. The peacemakers, well, you have the the fruit of the spirit of peace seems to fit pretty good there. And those who are persecuted, long-suffering would be appropriate, I think, for them. And over all of it, blessed is 
It's like the fruit of the Spirit that's joy. You know, it, it produces within us uh, a, a joy to, to face the situations that we, that we need to face in our lives. Well, let's just take a quick look. We only have a, another brief minute on the woes. Let's look at Luke 6. We didn't read this earlier. You still have your Bible open to Luke. Luke 6, 24. Jesus said this, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. We already talked about that. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Well, let's look at those woes a little bit through the lens of Psalm 37. Who are those who are rich? I, I suggest that they may be the selfish. They're the opposite of the poor in spirit, right? The poor in spirit in the parentheses up there. These are the opposite of those. And these people, according to Psalm 37, if you read that section in one, verses 1 to 8, it mentions that they prosper in their way, that they intentionally hurt others, especially the righteous, and that they're a proud or arrogant people. And what is the, what is the curses upon them? No blessing or consolation after this life. This is it, folks. That's all you're going to get. It's like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, when you get a little further on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says about them, you have your reward in full. People giving them all this wonderful praise. That's it. You're getting nothing more. The next life, there's nothing but judgment, but condemnation. That's what they have to look forward to. What about those who laugh now, opposite of those who mourn? Well, if you're going to look into Psalm 37 passage, it talks about them plotting against the just, targeting the poor and needy, intent on destroying the upright. What are they going to do? They're going to mourn and weep. The Lord actually laughs at them. And we don't like the thought of that, but you read in Psalm, I think it's 2, where it talks about that. The Lord laughs at these nations that think they're so great, think that they're so mighty. We talked about it in the first meeting. What is absolute power? <laughs> it's God. And he has so much more power than any nation. Um, you know, we're, our nation is supposedly uh, touting how much force we have and all that. Well, we're, we're nothing compared to what God has. So these people are going to mourn and weep. The Lord's going to laugh at them. And their sword, it says, will enter their own heart. Sort of like Haman, who wanted to hang Mordecai, but ended up getting hung himself on those gallows. The meek, opposite of the abusers. And again, I'm making up these woes now. They're not scriptural, so you know, bear with me, if you will. Take what you can out of this. This is, this is my own thought. But these people, again, according to Psalm 37, if, if that identification is accurate, they're hurtful people. They're mischievous. They're controllers. They're not like the meek. They're not gentle. They're not non-retaliatory. Non they're not uh, people of that ilk, but instead, they're very aggressive. And what is their thing they have to look forward to? To get cut off entirely. Those who are full of what? Righteousness? I don't think so. Full of wickedness. They're the opposite of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But it says in Luke 6 that they will be, uh, those who are against the, these people will be full at some point. I suspect it's of wickedness. They're, in Psalm, they're successful, self-indulgent people. They're superior-minded. They're enemies of the Lord. What do they have to look forward to? To hunger, to perish, and vanish away. Not a happy looking forward to things. The greedy, opposite the merciful. They're unconcerned about others. They borrow and don't repay. They're mercilessly judged, cursed, and cut off. 
The impure in heart, obviously opposite the pure in heart, they're pleasure seekers, addictive personalities. They don't see God. They're not going to have an eternal relationship with him. They're going to be separated. That's what death is spiritually and cut off. What about the unforgiving, the, the opposite, the peacemakers? They're bitter. They're blaming people. They're not called sons of God, but perhaps as Jesus called the Pharisees and the scribes, they're sons of the devil and cut off. About those who men speak well of. Now, this is a little tricky one because all of us want to be spoken well of. I mean, none of us are saying, oh, I want to go out there and have everybody hate me. No, we, we, don't, we don't feel that way. But there is some truth to the fact that if everybody thinks we're great stuff, then maybe we're not being the light or the testimony, the salt that Jesus talks about in the, the next part of the Beatitudes and uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So those who men speak well of opposite those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, and that's in Luke 6. These are powerful people, according to Psalm 37. They target the righteous. And what's their thing to look forward to? No reward in heaven, but punishment in hell. They and their descendants are cut off. And that really pretty much is it, except to say I was blessed this last week as I was looking out uh, the window over our kitchen sink, and I, and I saw we had a little um, verse. You know, some of you have little verses on pieces of paper, and it was between our outside window and the storm on the inside. So it had been up there. For, I had the storm up for a couple of months, so it's been sitting there, and I had never really read it. And as I read it, this is what it said. <laughs> read it out of Psalm 37, the last two verses of that psalm that we've been looking at. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. And I hope that uh, maybe this has been a help for you to consider, especially going forward as times are going to probably get more difficult uh, against any who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. More opposition, more intolerance. Um, and the attitudes that we can have because of the Lord Jesus, uh, of these beatitudes, uh, something we, we can really be aware of. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, obviously this is not something that sounds very inviting to you because <laughs> you're going to face all this difficulty in your life. We don't often present the gospel in that way. But that is true. Your life won't be uh, the easiest because of it. But you will have the Lord Jesus Christ to be your salvation and to be your righteousness. Father in heaven, we just commit our time to you today. We thank you for uh, the Lord and, and, and his uh, messages to us. We pray as we go through this sermon, as we call it, or teachings on the mount that he gave his disciples and those who overheard uh, from the multitudes. We just pray that they might have an impact in our lives and, and really change our thinking and our, and our attitudes and our actions. Father, thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus, for being uh, the only one who could really stand between you and us and offer us eternal salvation. And uh, thank you for that blessing, the greatest blessing of all. And then these other blessings too in this life and the life to come, in the face of all the curses around us, we just give you thanks that you're such a gracious and good God. Thank you too for this food that we're about to partake of and ask your blessing on that as well now in Jesus' name. Amen.